The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a warm welcome to Squawkbox. It's day two in Davos. I'm Steve Sedgwick. And I'm Jeff Cutmore, and these are your headlines. The World Health Organization preparing to hold an emergency meeting as China confirms 440 cases of coronavirus and the first patient is diagnosed in the US. Fears of a pandemic keeping markets on edge. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam tells CNBC she's disappointed with the Moody's rating downgrade, defending her reaction to the unrest, but adding her resignation is not the answer. Walking away does not solve the problem. And of course, in my position, walking away could cause more uncertainty and confusion in the continued governance of Hong Kong. Plus, Boeing taking the wind out of the Dow with shares sinking on a fresh warning that the 737 MAX will not be back in the air before mid-2020. And I discussed the future of financial markets with a star-studded WEF panel featuring US Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva, UK Chancellor Sajid Javid and UBS Chairman of the Board Axel Weber. And I'm Juliana Tattlebaum. Also coming up on this show, international growth helps Netflix beat expectations in the fourth quarter. But the streaming giant reveals U.S. subscribers are slowing down as competition heats up. So welcome back to Squawk Box here at the World Economic Forum in Davos as we continue our special coverage of the 50th anniversary event. Did you get out to lots of parties last oh, night? Find out lots of interesting things? <laughs> you know my habits in Davos, <laughs> my survival habits. Like, yes. they're, they're, as you and I have said many, many times, everyone in Davos is a different experience. Yes. And you and I have got a huge day today of pan and your panel. Yes. So do you know what I like about your panel? I, I, I'm sorry to blow wind a little bit here, but right. sometimes you have six people. Yeah. And, and, and dare I say it, you only want the key four. But yes. today you've got the key four. So I'm, yes. I'm, I'm absolutely very excited about it. Yes. Today. Unfortunately, time constraints mean we may get chipped down to about 45 minutes. But I will do my best no. to extract as much newsworthy comment as I can Wef about everything. We'll see if we can cut short the cut more. We'll see if we can get some questions in about this uh, virus as well. Because mm. clearly that is starting to concern a lot of people. And we are seeing reaction in the financial markets. So I think that is news worthy at this point yeah, as well. It'd be a yeah. shame to miss that out. That'll come, that'll come up uh, obviously throughout our programming. Today as well we've got a big lineup for you. Um, this hour we're going to speak to, I've already seen him offset but Bernard Chalet who is the CEO of Dassault System, they've made a massive recent acquisition. Uh, Herman Graff the chairman of Sparebank, was that on you? Yeah, we talked last night. He is very excited about the changes going on within the Russian government. Is you know, it? there's an international is view it? that this is about power consolidation. Yes. Yes. He says, yeah, this is a about 
rejuvenating the Russian economy. Is that right? We'll have a listen That's to the interview that I did late yesterday evening. Uh, a couple of other amazing guests, ABB CEO and Chairman Peter Vosa. I mean, where this company goes next, a lot of activist pressure for ABB. And Pascal Soria, who's the CEO of AstraZeneca. My understanding is they've got an exciting announcement out today. Plus, of course, it's never been more apt to talk to key uh, pharmaceutical companies, such mm. as Roche, who we're speaking to, uh, and AstraZeneca as well. So huge focus on health today. Uh, the World Health Organization will today hold an emergency meeting on this new virus outbreak in China. The country has confirmed 440 cases of the pneumonia-like illness, also raising the death toll to nine. The Chinese National Health Commission said more than 2,000 people have been isolated. Uh, meanwhile, America's uh, Centers for Disease Control reacting to the news of the first U.S. patient with the mysterious virus that reminds officials of SARS or SARS-like symptoms. It's been diagnosed, uh, or one individual has been diagnosed north of Seattle. The CDC also said two more airports, Chicago and Atlanta, will start screening passengers. Uh, Chinese hotel and airlines uh, and airline ADRs trading in the United States sold off sharply amid concerns over the spread of the virus. Meanwhile, Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam has defended the city's police force, telling CNBC she will not subject them to an investigation over their handling of the protests. Speaking in a first-on interview with CNBC, she said authorities had shown restraint. Protesters are expected to use the Lunar New Year holiday to stage further demonstrations. Lam said calls for her to resign were misguided and that stepping down would cause more uncertainty. I have a duty to ensure that Hong Kong will move forward. The last thing that uh, Hong Kong people would like to see is uh, Hong Kong being stagnant because there are so many issues we need to tackle. So taking responsibility uh, could take the form of continue to try to arrest the situation and help Hong Kong to move on, whereas walking away does not solve the problem. And of course, in my position, walking away could cause more uncertainty and confusion in the continual governance of Hong Kong. It's been a very brutal seven months, mm. and you personally must have suffered immensely, mm. I would imagine, because no Hong Kong citizen mm. wants to see taking place what's mm. taken place over the last seven months. Did you offer your resignation to Beijing, and were you told that you need to stay in place to finish the job? Well, I have said in public, and I will repeat it, here, Jeff, that I did not, I have not tendered my resignation because the core of responsibility uh, requires me to stay on and deal with the situation. But uh, since you mentioned the frustrations or the, um, um, the difficulties over the last seven months, I want to say that the, the most difficult part is to see the city that I love and where I was born and grown up has sort of suddenly changed to a place where people have lesser respect for the rule of law and whether and also where the society is so divided and so polarized so i really hope that uh, as we move on that uh, we will overcome some of these challenges the um, the hong kong affairs office director the new director who seems to be um a slightly different breed of person to the previous official has started talking about whether there's a need for a new security act in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, 
That so far hasn't happened, but there are others in your mm. government who have also chimed in in the last 24 mm. hours and suggested mm. that might be an appropriate direction to move in. Is that something that you're planning to do? And does the fact that the new director has made those comments suggest that there is a harder line approach coming? Well, those comments have been made from time to time because enacting local legislation to protect uh, national security has always been Hong Kong's constitutional obligation. That is written into the basic law. So uh, as the chief executive and even uh, Hong Kong as a whole, we do have that duty to deliver on that score. So because you, that's very important. So, but, so you wouldn't rule that. out that that's coming now? No, I wouldn't be able to tell you the time nor to commit to a timetable because, well, we have learned, I have learned, that when you said that you want to plan to do something, you have to have a level of confidence that you could deliver mm -hmm. on that plan or that something. Uh, we did it in 2003. Uh, we did not succeed. So, fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. I think we learned quite a lot about how yeah. the government is insisting pretty much on the approach that it's taken so far here. The challenge, of course, is that this, this, this protest, um, like many of these uh, popular protests that we see around the world, has a number of causes. And the immediate one was the bringing forward of this legislation and the fact that people are concerned about the one country, two systems uh, rules being chipped away gradually eroded by this new legislation. But, of course, the deeper-seated underlying issues are very much about what WEF is about, this story of inequality, the story of young people finding that it's difficult for them to buy property, inflated uh, property markets in Hong Kong and other places are just pulling up the bottom of the ladder for many young people who feel they have no choice but to demonstrate. Did you get the impression that... Uh, Carrie Lam was holding the look or actually takes a, a share of the blame because my understanding from you and other experts on the area is that Carrie Lam has to stand up and say, yeah, I've got a lot wrong so far. Yeah, no, I think that's... Uh, she has apologised several times uh, for the extradition bill introduction and of course preceding that there was already um, a level of protest in the territory about the West Kowloon railway station and the fact that um, mainland Chinese officials were going to be brought into Hong Kong to operate the immigration um, floor um, uh, parallel to sure. Hong Kong officials. And that already kicked off a, a, a lot of protests because people were saying, hang on a second, if this is one country, two systems, why do we have mainline Chinese immigration officials already in Hong Kong? So that started the process. Mm. People felt that that was rammed through without enough consult consultation. And of course, there is a, a, a process where you put forward new legislation for review by a committee of judges and solicitors and so forth, and they give a, um, a, a studied opinion on that, it was felt that that process okay. didn't happen when it came to the extradition bill. And so there is a measure of responsibility that lies at Carrie Lam's feet. Terrific interview, nonetheless, Jeffrey. Well, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, hopefully we're going to have uh, uh, more interesting uh, conversations as we go through the morning here. Uh, US Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin has defended US policies, uh, crediting them for the country's economic 
economic strength as he addressed delegates here in Davos, echoing, echoing comments made by President Trump on the main stage. He said the administration's economic program is helping the American economy outperform the rest of the world. Mnuchin struck a defensive tone on trade matters in particular, arguing the White House's protectionist approach is not hurting global growth. Well, the US Treasury Secretary will join me on stage for a panel I'm moderating on the future of financial markets. The other speakers, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva, UK Chancellor Sajid Javid, and UBS Chairman of the Board Axel Weber. That coming up at 10.30 CET. Massive issue. I want to change tack onto other issues as well because I'm delighted. A stalwart of our coverage at Davos every single year is you. Uh, <laughs> but also Bernard Chalet, who is the CEO of Dassault System. Good morning, my friend. How are you? Excellent. Look, um, let's get straight into the issue. You are arguably, not much of an argument, the, uh, Europe's most successful tech company. Your shares trade at a huge premium uh, to, dare I say, other benchmarks. And uh, again, I've looked just many times. And so what do you do in an era where your shares are flying high, you're very successful and there's free money around? You make a massive acquisition, and that's what you've done. $5.8 billion acquisition of media data. Uh, you did that, completed in November as well. Uh, uh, October, I believe. Um, is that um, you saying, I just can't stand on the sidelines, I have to spend a load of money when it's this free? Well, we have a long-term strategy. As you know, we have changed a lot the manufacturing by doing digitalization. Planes are all done virtually now. And uh, they fly right first time without physical prototyping. So we are moving now from things to life. Uh, we really want to do the virtual twin experience of human bodies. I think the uh, healthcare uh, is, is, is going through a significant new evolution where a science on simulation modeling, uh, which by the way is very well supported by FDA, for example, are needed to do a new collaborative work because it's so complex. We need to change that. We did it in manufacturing over the last 30 years. 10 out of 10 planes are done with our software, cars. Why are you doing this rather than the men we're speaking to later on, uh, the CEOs of Roche and the likes of Pascal Sorio from um, AstraZeneca as well? Why is it uh, a 3D company which has mastered that side of things as well? The, the, why will you be doing this? Well, you know, human body is very complex from, from DNA to organs. Uh, today, there is a flat definition of it. You need to do Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci for digitalization. You need to better understand how things work. Make visible the invisible and really transform the research. And it has been quite artisanal when you think about it. Surgery practices are quite artisanal. You go to surgery room without simulation. We are going to go in surgery room after simulation. And you will have simulated all situation of that real human before you go there. I think I've asked the wrong question. Why isn't GE doing this? Why isn't Siemens doing this? Why isn't Philips doing this? Rather because than we those have farms superior technology. That's it's competition. You know, uh, why are we the best in designing uh, airplane satellites? We are the number one, and we want to do it for human. Uh, we are doing it for cities. Uh, in Singapore, we are doing it in major cities in China, because I think the world of simulation helps you to predict before you actually spend materials, energy to do it. And think about it, cities are totally chaotic, there is no simulation of how it will evolve, it has to change too. So same goes with uh, life science, 
And I think uh, you mentioned Pascal, Soyo, you can, uh, Christopher Weber from, from Takeda. They all are convinced, Paul Lutzon from Sanofi and others, they all are convinced that modeling and simulation will change the way people collaborate. What do you think this uh, business area could be worth to you? Well, I think, I think uh, basically if you look at things, life and infrastructure, it can be three or four times the current DASO system. We're still, we're still a startup company, I think. You're talking about the vision. Can I talk about the realities at the moment? We're in a, a, a world of trade tensions and economic confrontation. Uh, we've just had the US and uh, France sit down and negotiate a, um, a detente, shall we say, over this digital tax. Um, we've got a phase two China trade negotiation process unfolding. This has had an impact on industrial spending and industrial output. How has that affected you and how concerned are you about what comes next? Well, I take the problem exactly the other way around. Uh, I think you look at the media and retail. Platforms, uh, they have won in retail and media. I think it cannot be the why by collecting data without people being informed. It cannot be the same for industry. And for industry, Europe will put a plan together to make sure that industrial data are shared among industry ecosystems to provide proper service and products and values to the community, whether you are citizens, whether you are a passion who wants to be in good life, in good health. So I think we have the next, in the next five years to change the rules. We are trying to recover a problem of the past. We need to build new rules. We have GDPR. It has been a major progress. Why we don't do these new rules for digital trading of data, which are so critical for infrastructure, healthcare, and uh, cannot be owned by one uh, platform or two platforms without even saying it to people. And those rules are going to be, I think the uh, Commissioner Breton is very clear and is going to defend that position and I think this will change the rules of the future. Bernard, always a pleasure catching up. Always too short, but that's the Davos experience. Nice <laughs> to see you this morning. Great pleasure. Uh, Bernard Charlet, the CEO of Dasso Systems. Let's catch up on the overnight market action with Juliana. Thank you so much, guys. Really enjoying your coverage in Davos. Well, let's take a look at what happened on Wall Street before we get to the overnight session in Asia. Stateside, we saw stocks come under pressure as concerns about that virus outbreak in China really weighed on global sentiment. The Dow ended just over 150 points lower. Boeing made up 73 of that point drop, and that came after Boeing said that it doesn't expect to win approval for the return of the 737 MAX uh, to service until mid-year. So uh, Boeing weighing on the Dow. Let's take a look at Asian markets, the overnight session. We are seeing a little bit of stabilization after a mainland China saw a major drop yesterday on those concerns about the spread of the virus. The Hang Seng also rebounding a bit after yesterday. That index came under particular pressure on the back of that Moody's downgrade of Hong Kong's credit rating. So a little bit of stabilization coming through for the Asian markets. Opening calls. What are we in for? The European session. Uh, yesterday, we saw the stock 600 log its second negative session in a row. Just like in Asia, we are looking for a little bit of a bounce back here in Europe today. Corporate earnings in focus. And then, of course, uh, tomorrow we've got that ECB meeting. And Friday, we've got global PMIs. Jeff? 
Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that. The CEO and chairman of Russia's Spurbank, Herman Greff, says the constitutional reforms in Russia have enforced President Vladimir Putin's position as one of the world's most powerful leaders. Mr. Putin is very powerful. He's one of the most powerful persons in the Russian history, and I think that it's, it's very difficult to find this kind of powerful person in 2024. And uh, I think this is the check and balance system will uh, support, don't make shocks inside the country and outside. The data in this podcast is brought to you by Refinitiv, our global data and analytics partner for Squawk Box Podcast, a road to Davos. Refinitiv is an open data ecosystem powering the financial markets through an open platform, advanced technologies, and deep domain expertise. Learn more at refinitiv.com forward slash Davos. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Well, U.S. tech earnings season kicked off yesterday. Shares in Netflix moved higher in after-hours trade as the streaming giant delivered a beat on the top and bottom line in the fourth quarter. The company added 8.8 million global net subscribers in the period. That was well ahead of its internal forecast, but missed numbers in the U.S., where it acknowledged that growth is slowing amid an increasingly competitive landscape. Netflix expects the slowdown to continue as even more players enter the market in North America and abroad. IBM shares jumped by as much as 5% in extended trade after the company beat fourth quarter expectations and forecast full year profit above estimates. Now, IBM reported a small increase in quarterly revenue on the back of growth in its cloud computing business. It comes as CEO Ginny Rometty aims to shift the company's focus to the cloud through acquisitions and asset sales. Don't miss CNBC's interview with Rometty live in Davos. That's coming up at 14.30 CET. And on that note, let's get back out to Switzerland. Isn't that interesting, the, uh, the, the small bump around cloud? I think we should get into that a little bit later. I'm, I'm fascinated well, we to see, will what, get into cloud. see what's going on with that cloud uh, story. I think it's for a traditional Indian IT services that have been just so fantastically mm. um, growth-oriented for the Indian economy, global economy over the years. Now it's slowing down down a lot as well because they're worried about the cloud taking away the need for their IT services. So yeah, we'll I, cut I, into I, that one. I, I have some don't. views. So I think. We'll, oh, I yeah, bet you. Yeah, do. Okay. I bet you. Anyway, uh, a break from the past. That's how Russian President Vladimir Putin described his new government, which Parliament approved on last night. Uh, last night, uh, incoming cabinet members under the Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin include uh, ministers of economy and the first deputy Prime Minister. However, there are a few familiar faces, Mr. Sulyanov hung on to finance. We also saw Mr. Lavrov keep his place at defence. And your friend did, did, at the oil ministry, he's still there, I, Mr. Novak. I say friend, like you and I, we both yeah. have a healthy respect for Mr. Novak and what he's yes, done uh, to, I guess, invigorate OPEC. So, yeah, yeah. interesting. So uh, there were some new faces, uh, but there were some old faces that stayed in place. But the changes are part of a plan for a wider shake-up, potentially involving constitutional changes. Karen sat down with Kirill Dmitriev, the CEO of the Russian Direct Investment Fund, who struck a positive tone about the reshuffle. 
the right description is checks and balances. So those are really big changes for Russia, and typically president had you know, major power in Russia. But what is introduced is actually slightly reducing power of president and having rights checks and balances. So frankly, it's a positive move, and even the liberal side of the political spectrum recognizes it as a positive move because checks and balances are good, just as U.S. has checks and balances between judicial executive uh, and uh, another branch of the government. And also very important, the introduction of the new government of Russia. Uh, actually, right now, real time, it's being announced, and we know it consists of lots of great individuals focused on results. Whereas the previous government really focused more on macroeconomic stability, the new government will be focused on growth and really a breakthrough in economic growth that Russia needs. Kirill Dmitriev at uh, RDIF. I also sat down with uh, Spurbank CEO Herman Greff uh, to talk about the ability of this new government to undertake real change. I think this is going to happen now. Mr. Mishustin has created one of the most effective, efficient tax services in the world. He is the first engineer to head the government, the first technocrat to do so. I think that digital transformation, innovations, investment in education, modern economic development are on his agenda and they are likely to radically change our country's image. Of course, we're, we're speculating about the reasons for this change now that was very unexpected, not only internationally, but it, but it seems by a lot of people in, in Russia itself. Um, it's been characterized as a way of the president to hold on to power and change what happens for those who come after him. Uh, you seem to see this as a more positive story about the economy. Why do you think it's happened now? I think it is linked to the electoral cycle, among other things, given that the president has announced changes to the constitution so that no one would be able to hold presidential office for more than two terms. What this means is that in 2024, Russia will have a new president. After such a powerful figure as President Putin, a new system of smooth handover and transition of power will have to be put in place to avoid any shocks inside the country and outside it. This appears the most opportune moment for such an announcement. We have lacked an effective economic policy, so the fact that the new government and the new prime minister would focus primarily on and be tailored for increasing the effectiveness of government, making government more effective and making economic policies more effective is a very positive development for the whole country. I think that we still have time, four years before elections, to change the economic outlook, to improve the social climate in the country. So overall, I think these changes are very timely. So yes, this came as a surprise, but it was done just in time. This was a very opportune move. You, I know, um, have been, I think, frustrated at times by the fact that Russia hasn't achieved its potential growth rates. We look at current growth projections and somewhere around 2% there or thereabouts. But many international economists believe Russia could achieve 4% plus with some of these reforms implemented. How optimistic are you that those numbers can be achieved? I am very optimistic. Russia has an historic chance now, I think, to significantly improve its economic policies 
and to achieve the economic growth rate above the average global rate. Four plus or even five or six percent. This is what we need. So if the policies become more effective, it could be done. Yeah, fascinating take on where the Russian economy goes next as, uh, well, it looks to outsiders that Mr Putin will be carrying on somewhere near the top for a long time. Anyway, look, we're going to be speaking to Peter Vosa, the chairman of ABB, after a short break. It's been a, a year of turmoil 2019 for the company, but is there clarity ahead? We'll speak to Peter Vosa. Well, apparently it's only day two of Davos. It feels longer, but you're watching Scorebox, and I'm Steve Sedgwick. And I'm Jeff Cutmore, and these are your headlines. The World Health Organization prepares to hold an emergency meeting as China confirms 440 cases of coronavirus, and the first patient is diagnosed in the United States. Fears of a pandemic keeping markets on edge. Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam tells CNBC she is disappointed with the rating downgrade from Moody's, defending her reaction to the unrest, but adding her resignation is not the answer. Walking away does not solve the problem. And of course, in my position, walking away could cause more uncertainty and confusion in the continual governance of Hong Kong. Well, not a great surprise, but the Republican Senate blocking Democrat attempts to introduce witnesses and documents in the third impeachment trial in U.S. history as it extends uh, late into the night on its first day. International growth helps Netflix beat expectations in the fourth quarter, but the streaming giant reveals U.S. subscriber numbers are slowing down as competition heats up. Well, one of the big movers yesterday was Boeing stateside. Boeing says it doesn't expect the 737 MAX to return to the skies again before the summer, citing delays in the certification process and regulatory pushback over its flight control system. It means airlines will likely have to cancel scheduled MAX flights during the busy travel season. The 737 MAX has, of course, been grounded worldwide since last March after two new planes crashed in the space of five months. Boeing shares closed more than 3% lower after falling almost 6% during Tuesday's session. Well, let's widen it out and just look at U.S. markets more broadly. The Dow, you can see, ended about 150 points lower. Boeing made up 73 of that 152-point drop. S&P and the Nasdaq also ended lower, largely owing to those concerns around the virus outbreak in China. Guys? Terrific. Thanks very much, Juliana. President Trump has used his speech here at the World Economic Forum in Davos to hail the strength Did of the U.S. economy. It? I listened. I watched I the know, whole thing. Yeah, same yeah there, I yes. thought it was fascinating. Well, he spoke to a packed auditorium. He said America was experiencing an economic boom, quote, the likes of which has never been seen before. Never. Celebrating the dignity of work is a fundamental pillar of our agenda. This is a blue-collar boom. Since my election, the net worth of the bottom half of wage earners has increased by plus 47 percent, three times faster than the increase for the top 1 percent. Real median household income is at the highest level ever recorded. The American dream is back, bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. 
Well, I thought for such an extraordinary orator, it was an extraordinary shopping list of, dare I say, he said his achievements, but then he went on to the bit about foolish fortune tellers, but Mm. uh, we'll come to that maybe later on. Some of the biggest names in US business have told CNBC they are positive about the prospects for the US economy. Right now, I don't see any prospect of a recession in 2020. And I also think unemployment's gonna stay low, interest rates will stay low. So economy's pretty good. If the U.S. consumer's in good shape, that usually bodes well for the rest of the U.S. economy just because that sheer volume. And we see about $3 trillion a year of spending go through our customers' accounts. The backbone of this recovery, 11, 12 years in, has been the consumer. And when you look at what matters to the consumer, it's jobs, it's employment. We're in a spot in monetary policy where you can no longer stimulate the same way you did before. You used to push a button and go, and it would go up. With the Fed pivot, I think we've gotten uh, a revival in economic activity. We've got the trade war on hold now. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons to be positive about the economy for the next 12 months or so. <laughs> right, well, one of the most experienced European businessmen, I think it's fair to say, Peter Foser, who is the CEO and chairman of ABB. Really nice to see you. We were trying to work out how many years we've been interviewing you in your various roles, and it, the answer is a lot. So, look, um, US businessmen and the president, of course, uh, seem optimistic, but does that tell the whole story? Of course, ABB has had a tough time in China. Uh, we're all concerned about the trade ramifications. Just how is it from your point of view, Peter? Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. <clears throat> I think in general we see a little bit of mixed pack in the economy. So we have some sectors, some industries are still driving very, very positively across the world. So all the big markets as well, including China. And then we have on the other side some others like the automotive sector where we are exposed with robotics quite significantly. There we have seen a downturn in a, in a bigger way across the world. Uh, but we feel there that it is starting, we start to see some turning there as well. So overall, I think um, we are more positive than maybe six months ago. I am speaking to someone yesterday, and there's so many eminent people around here. It's it's wonderful. You bump into them all the time. And they said to me, don't look at the 6% growth figure from China. Look at the fuel consumption figures as well. They're very concerned that that's just, um, dare I say it, painting gloss on what is a much tougher economic picture in that. Is that your experience at ABB? Yeah, as I said, typically for China, the industries are very different. So you have very strong still on the infrastructure, on the, the construction side is going well. But then on the, some other areas, uh, we see consumption actually going down. And that's where uh, clearly um, we have now for 18 or 24 months in the car industries, uh, we have gone down double digits. So uh, that's very visible. So it is clearly a, a pressure point at the moment in China. Peter, just in terms of the, the structure of the business, How far are you away, do you think, from where you want the business to be? Obviously, the power grid's divestment will run through the first half of this year. Then I think we had news uh, last week about some job losses in the United States. It's been a process, it seems to me, of spinning off assets and shuttering some businesses. What next? I think now for the next 12 months, 24 months, this is all about executing the strategy and improving the performance which we have. And hence some of the restructuring projects, you have mentioned one of them in the US. So we use 2019 to reset the agenda, have a business-led structure where um, corporate actually does no longer have the role it used to have with 17,000 people influencing the businesses. So we are completely changing that. That has gone live 1st of January now. 
and therefore the accountability and the empowerment sits in the business. So those who have to deliver the results have now clear, clear bottom line accountability and we will drive this further and uh, with the new CEO coming in uh, in due course, he can now take on the operational performance piece. But if I look at 19, uh, quarter two and three, we haven't published four, uh, they have seen some uptick, we have improved the margins, so it's starting to work um, and uh, we want to get all the restructuring behind us as fast as possible, get the power grid still done, uh, because obviously that was a big piece of work uh, so far for us, and then I think we are well positioned to take um, the opportunities, because the opportunities in the market are made for ABB. Um, you obviously came in to steady the ship, um, Ulrich left but for years, Steve and I interviewed him, and it was robotics, 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 it was brilliant, innovation, it? innovation, mm. innovation. And we got a sense that mm. that was what ABB stood for. There's been a lot of divestment, and you've steadied the ship, and you've spent 2019 dealing with some areas of the business that have not performed. What is ABB going to be as we roll into 21, 22? What is the vision for this business? I think you take the macro view, um, we are dealing, uh, we are working in electrification and on the other side in automation and robotics. Um, we already have 60% of our revenues are aiming at the kind of new energy system in the world. So that's where we are growing. And we have done a deal in the US on this one as well. We bought the GE business, which we are integrating. So that's positioned well. Then on the automation side, you have two things. You have really the process and discrete automation, which we are uh, driving, and then robotics. In robotics, we are preparing for the future because we saw the slump in automotive. Uh, but we took an anti-cyclical approach and we are building the biggest robotic factory now uh, in China. Uh, in the world, the most advanced one, and uh, that should prepare us well for the upturns in those businesses. So I think going forward, this is about using what we have, and that's talent, that's technology, that's our digital drive, um, because all of our clients in all industries are going through this transformation to increase productivity with digital, uh, with a digital drive, and we are their partners. Peter, um, I don't know if this is provocative or not, but I will ask it. Who runs the company? Now, ostensibly it's you. It will be uh, Bjorn Rosengren. But there is a debate whether long-term big shareholders like Investor Abe or whether the likes of the activist Sevian run the company. So there, there are three or four candidates there. Who runs the company? There is only one, and that's the CEO. And the chairman has now played the CEO <laughs> for 10 months. So my job will clearly be to step away and let him actually drive the company. And he has the full uh, backing by the board. Uh, we're all aligned behind the strategy, which we have published into the market and have my worked on. So there is no doubt who runs the company, because if you have too many uh, cooks in the kitchen, it will not so work. So it's irrelevant so. for me to ask whether the activists are too powerful. Uh, I would not agree to that in our case. Um, I think they, they have a medium-term view, uh, which is based on performance and strategic execution. That's the same like any other in the company we want to perform. So I think it's uh, up to us to make sure that we are not an attractive target to activists because we are underperforming. And the last few years in our operational performance were not to our liking, and hence we made some changes, and, <clears throat> and now we are driving performance. So um, I don't see a problem there. We, we have a unified board and we look all at the same things.
Peter, well, we look forward to see what next company you're parachuted into as well. But uh, we've worn many guys over here. But lovely to see you again, sir. Thank you for joining us. Peter Fosa, who is the CEO and chairman of uh, ABB. Let's hand it back to you, Juliana. I hope it's nice and warm where you are. It is. It is nice and warm. <laughs> Thank you for checking in. Well, I want to bring you an update on the impeachment trial, which has been underway in the U.S. Senate. Of course, uh, President Donald Trump speaking in Davos yesterday and there today. But plenty of action back in Washington. The majority Republicans rebuffed attempts by their Democrat counterparts to include more documents in the hearings. They also rejected efforts to subpoena former National Security Advisor John Bolton for testimony. Although Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did rule evidence from the House impeachment proceedings could be presented. In his Davos speech yesterday, President Trump reiterated his opinion that the trial is a, quote, hoax. House managers will begin presenting their case later today. Uh, okay, so we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. Pascal Sorier will join us, the CEO of AstraZeneca. What were you doing at 17 years of age, Jeff? No, I don't uh, want to ask. 17 years. Something to do with a Mark 1 Escort and a party, I think. Yeah. But let's not go there. Long it's a long time anyway, ago. Anyway, one of the other headline acts of the World Economic Forum yesterday was the aforementioned 17-year-old activist Greta Thunberg. Uh, she warned delegates that time was running out to address dangerous emission levels. Uh, the teenager also blasted leaders for letting party politics affect climate change policies. I've been warned that telling people to panic about the climate crisis is a very dangerous thing to do. But don't worry, it's fine. Trust me, I've done this before and I can assure you it doesn't lead to anything. <laughs> and, and for the record, when we children tell you to panic, we're not telling you to go on like before. But let's call it how it was. Mr. Trump was almost certainly directly talking about Greta Thunberg when he talked about uh, doomsters, apocalyptic claims, what total control and foolish fortune tellers as well. But we'll, we'll leave that one. We'll come back to this later on as well because it was very robust on both sides of the debate. Uh, the CEO of Nestle, Mark Schneider, has told CNBC the UK appears to be on track for an orderly Brexit. Wow. Which should limit supply interruptions. However, he said the Swiss food conglomerate is still making contingency plans uh, should London and Brussels fail to strike a deal. The good news is that with the proceedings through the fall that uh, it seems a hard Brexit has been avoided and so it's a more orderly process. Our first priority, given that the UK is one of our key markets and top 10 markets worldwide, we wanted to be sure that we're not leaving the UK consumer alone, that there's not going to be stockouts and any supply interruptions. A lot of the UK products are imported or raw materials are imported that are then being manufactured into final goods in the UK. And so an orderly process to us was a top priority and it seems this is uh, shaping up. So the whole notion of food shortages and price spikes, is that off the table? It looks for now, at least, it's going to be a better solution compared to a hard Brexit. Uh, where uh, the pinch points are going to be during the year, we'll find out. Uh, we did run extra stock levels to be sure that we live up to our consumer commitment, and we're prepared either way. 
The CEO of Nestle there. The World Health Organization is expected to meet in Geneva today to discuss calling the potentially deadly coronavirus a global health emergency. The last time the WHO took this decision was in 2019 when an Ebola outbreak in eastern Congo killed more than 2,000 people. The agency also declared health emergencies for the Zika virus in 2016 and the H1N1 swine flu in 2009. Well, speaking to CNBC at Davos, Merck CEO and chairman Stefan Oshman said he was monitoring the situation around the outbreak. It's not a question whether something like that would happen, but when. So we don't know whether this is going to develop into a, 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 the coronavirus, whether that's going to develop into, into a pandemic. Uh, well, let's bring in uh, Pascal Sorier, the CEO of AstraZeneca. Pascal, very good morning to you and welcome. Morning, Joe. Um, look, I know not core, but um, I think the world is very interested to know what's going on with this coronavirus story. Um, is it a wake-up call as to the lack of preparedness, perhaps, for some of these potential pandemic risks? Oh, I think that, uh, you know, this is not the first time we experience this in the world. And uh, many times companies and uh, governments have got prepared for it. Now, I think we'll have to wait for the WHO to give us some guidelines. Mm. And just like uh, my colleague at Merck, uh, we are monitoring the situation. We have our own uh, plans for this kind of event. Um, uh, but we'll have to wait to hear from WHO. Um, how serious uh, do you really think this is? Um, we're getting information in dribs and drabs from the Chinese authorities but at the moment it doesn't seem as though the casualty count is very high at this point no, thank it, goodness. It really looks like at this point it's very contained uh, it started in Wuhan as you know and it looks like it's contained we have a very large presence in uh, China we're number one pharmaceutical company there we employ 16,000 people so as you would imagine uh, it matters to us and we really care a lot and we monitor this but it really looks that it is contained for the time being. Pascal your company has some amazing solutions to pandemic issues global health issues what have you but is there something the world should be doing? And this came up in the global risk report about pandemics and potentially our overuse of antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera, about huge global risk. Is there many obvious things that the world should be doing, countries like the US, China, Europe, should be doing to actually avert and alleviate the need for some of the solutions yeah. that you provide? Well, actually, Steve, you actually bring two different topics together, if I may say so. Coronavirus is, is, is a virus, as its name uh, indicates, and has nothing to do with overuse of antibiotics. You, no. The world needs to be prepared. But you also raise another topic, which is overuse of antibiotics has led to development of resistances. Uh, and suddenly antibiotics need to be used appropriately. But I would say here the governments have to really put in place a policy to encourage companies to develop new antibiotics because everybody is stopping development of new antibiotics and we will have a crisis at some point. And health crises will go in parallel as well and look Jeff's been chiding me for my, my, my reading of nutrition and um, looking at diseases recently and I've become very fascinated about it and it seems that 21st century western diets are affecting the whole world now not just the west as well. Uh, it sounds awful to say so but this is going to provide huge new markets for you. Well, actually, uh, the uh, president of the International Diabetes Federation many years ago uh, called uh, the development of diabetes in China Coca-Colonization, which basically what he meant by this was people are moving to the city 
uh, the cities and they eat more and they exercise less and, and, and they drink and eat a lot of sugar and then they gain weight, right? So this is a, a global phenomenon for sure and it leads to diabetes and it leads to kidney disease, heart disease. And of course patients or so people will be in need of our, of our medicines uh, but hopefully they change their, their diet. Uh, but if you look at people today compared to what they looked like 40, 50 years ago, usually you have a big difference. Everybody has gained weight, unfortunately. China is fascinating, yeah, and, I, and I know that you've made this major commitment uh, along with um, uh, CICC back in November, but a billion, uh, a billion dollars is quite a sizable commitment. As you look at the opportunity in China, to what extent is that going to be about um, technology and lifestyle? Um, pharmaceutical solutions perhaps rather than focusing on new cancer drugs per se or, or, or other new compounds? Oh, actually I think it's going to be a mixture of everything. I mean hopefully people change their lifestyle as you said but you know you know how it is, how, we all know how, how hard it is to change our lifestyle. So ultimately people will uh, age and then, uh, and then they, they will develop diseases. So there will be needs of new medicines, but there will be also needs of new solutions, um, combining, for instance, digital solutions with medicines to diagnose them earlier, treat them better, make sure they take their treatments, and help them also change their lifestyle. So digital, I think, is going to be a part, a big part of how you diagnose and treat and monitor patients. Let me uh, ask two questions in one as well. Again, seeing as that's my modus operandi today as well. Um, there was a debate yesterday uh, between uh, Thunberg on one hand, separately from what Mr. Trump said. One's talking about we've got seven years. The other one's talking about um, there are doomsters out there who want absolute control as well. AstraZeneca... Uh, and, and, and other CEOs need to perhaps speak up of what they believe is going on. You've yeah. got an important announcement today as well. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, we talked about uh, SARS a minute ago, but I personally believe there's a much more urgent and lethal threat that is, that is in front of us, and it's uh, uh, climate change. And I think uh, Greta, if I may call her that way, is very courageous, and she's very right, and she needs to call everybody, uh, call them out. And, and as a company, we decided we needed to do something, um, and it's urgent, and so we committed uh, to reduce our carbon emissions to be carbon zero by 2025 uh, for our own operations. And by 2030, we want to be carbon neutral for the entire value chain. So we will be working with our suppliers and other partners to can reduce you, carbon just emissions. Just briefly, can you just explain, will that have any bottom line impact? Well, it will actually uh, require some investments, of course. But we believe that, uh, you know, in the long run, we will benefit from it. Um, we are going to invest in energy saving uh, f solutions, uh, developing uh, ways to produce energy, re renewable energies. So I think in the long run, we will have a much more efficient set of facilities and save money. But it's a long term investment for us. But at the end of the day, if nobody does anything, you know, climate change is become, going to become the issue. And you said the doomsters, are, uh, are, some people raise the issue of doomsters. I would tell you one thing, since we're talking about diseases. If you go to the doctor and he tells you or she tells you, you know, you really have to change your lifestyle because you have a serious disease. I mean, if you don't do that, it's at your own risk. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.